Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew 8, verse 1, we entered a new section in the Gospel of Matthew, and I mentioned a title that is typical of those given to this particular section. We referred to all of 8.1 through 11.1 under the heading, The Kingdom Extended Under Jesus' Authority. Now, I didn't invent that title, but I think it fits this section very well. There's a growing understanding in this section as to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. In the last chapter, we saw him healing the sick, restoring the outcast, welcoming the Gentiles. We even saw him calming a storm and and dealing with the demonic. Matthew is saying that Jesus has authority over illness, over the boundaries of the religious community, over the powers of nature, and over spiritual forces in this world. He is Lord over all. His kingdom is far-reaching in its scope and authority. Thanks be to God. Now, here in chapter 9, we see that scope and authority pressed out even further. We see him making bold claims, and we see him beginning to build a new community. But we also begin to see that this new movement, this new kingdom, does not go forward unopposed. In this chapter, Matthew begins to highlight the increasing resistance among certain segments of Jewish society to the person and work of Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. This, of course, refers to Capernaum, which serves as the home base for Jesus' Galilean ministry. Now, if you are familiar with Mark's gospel, you will recognize that as with the story of the demon and the pigs in chapter 8, so here with the story of the paralytic, Matthew shortens the narrative and eliminates a lot of the detail. In general, Matthew will say less than Mark when stories are being told and more than Mark when teaching is being related. I mentioned before that Matthew is often called the teacher's gospel. Scrolls were only a certain length in those days, and if you wanted your gospel to fit on a single scroll, you had to make choices. And Matthew chooses to slim down most of Mark's narrative accounts in order to save space to dramatically blow up all the several teaching blocks that he wanted to include. Matthew will conclude this section with a fairly lengthy sermon from Jesus to his disciples in chapter 10. So these stories in chapters 8 and 9 have to be dealt with more briefly than they are in Mark's gospel. You'll notice that if you have two Bibles open in front of you as you're listening. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise. 
pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So again, Matthew doesn't tell us about how the friends climb up on the roof of Peter's house and carve a a hole and, and lower this brother down on top of Jesus. That's the part we all remember and love from Mark's version of the story. Matthew, though, needs to get to the point. The point is that Jesus heals this paralytic fellow, and then he says something absolutely explosive. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the important detail, theologically speaking. Now, why in the world would Jesus say that? Well, you need to remember that in Jewish culture, it was generally assumed that all illness was connected to personal sin in some way or another. So, for example, Rabbi Kaija ben Abba said, No sick person is cured from sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. Rabbi Alexander agreed, The sick does not arise from his sickness until his sins are forgiven. Close quote. So, people assumed that this man was a paralytic because of his sin, or perhaps because of the sin of his parents. Now, in Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, Jesus tells his disciples that they are not capable of identifying connections between this sin and that suffering, and so they shouldn't bother trying. He also says that some suffering is related to the mysterious purposes of God. We think of the dark providence in the book of Job as a further example of that. But either way, he says that mere human beings are not in a position to say anything definitive about the connection between a particular sin and a particular suffering. But here, Jesus seems to make just such a connection. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, everybody understands the implications. That's why the scribes are saying to themselves, this man is blaspheming. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Exactly. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And yet here is this paralyzed man picking up his mat and walking home. Do the math, Jesus is saying. This is clearly a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. You see the evidence of that before your face. And now you need to wrestle with the implications. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, obviously, there's a connection of some sorts between these two stories. It would be reasonable to assume that Matthew has just witnessed the healing of the paralytic. This is the same Matthew whose name is on the gospel that we're reading. This this is Matthew inserting himself into the story. So if he tells the story of the paralytic, it seems reasonable to assume that he saw it and that he wrestled with the implications and therefore was prepared to abandon his occupation in order to become a member of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. Matthew tells us in this verse that he had previously been a tax collector. He was sitting at his tax booth in Capernaum when Jesus called him. R.T. France says helpfully here, The tax office at Capernaum would be concerned with tolls on goods crossing the frontier of Antipas's tetrarchy 
either across the lake from the Decapolis or across the Jordan from Philip's tetrarchy. Matthew was thus apparently a customs official in the service of Herod Antipas, closed quote. Now, as you may have learned in Sunday school, tax collectors were not exactly popular in Israel in Jesus' day. The taxes ultimately went back to Rome, and Rome was the oppressor. Rome was pagan. And so some people even argued that paying taxes was sinful and idolatrous. So Matthew was nobody's idea of an ideal candidate for Jesus' inner circle. And yet, here is Jesus, once again confounding expectations by bringing yet another exile in from the cold. I hope you're identifying that as something of a pattern here. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Just notice quickly that very often Jesus calls one person in order to reach many other people within that first person's sphere of influence. He saves you and then he begins to draw in and reach other people in your circle through you. That's a pattern as well in the New Testament and also in the Christian life in general. Verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, notice, please, that Jesus was with sinners as a physician is with the sick. That's the analogy that he introduces. He was not buddies with them. He was with them on purpose and on mission. He came to call sinners to repentance. Therefore, we ought not to use this verse to justify foolish and unwise association. The New Testament also says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So if you're a Christian, your main friends and your primary association should be with other believers, as was in fact the case with Jesus. He spent most of his time with the 12 disciples and with three of those disciples in particular, but he regularly associated with sinners as a physician associates with the sick, as in purposefully, as in on mission, as in with urgency and focus. This is another one of those narrow roads with deep ditches on either side. Some of us will fall into the ditch of isolationism, which doesn't serve the gospel mission and which is ultimately unloving. And then others of us will fall into the ditch of foolishly and unthinkingly associating in ways that cause us to ultimately lose our saltiness, our distinctiveness, and that may even lead to our apostasy. And obviously that's not good either. In the middle... Between these two ditches, there is a narrow road of intentional, missional, compassionate association. That's the Jesus road. And by his grace and with his help, his people must find it and walk it in pursuit of the lost. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, 
the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is a very important little encounter. In it, we see that other leaders within the Jewish community are beginning to notice a certain discontinuity between Judaism and this new movement surrounding Jesus. Jesus is doing a different thing, and they want to know why. And Jesus responds with a mini parable of sorts about new wine and old wineskins, new cloth and old garments. Michael Green explains the saying this way. He says, Jesus is clear that his coming marks a discontinuity with all of that, all the forms and practices of Judaism. The old skins cannot contain the new wine he is bringing. Old regulations about ceremonial defilement cannot stand before the joy of forgiveness, fellowship, excitement, and new direction which the coming of the kingdom inaugurates. Closed quote. So it's important for us to understand that according to Jesus, Christianity is not a mere patch on Judaism. Christianity is new wine and will therefore require new wineskins, new forms of worship, and new practices and structures. So important for us to understand that. We need to also notice here that to be with Jesus is by definition to be rejoicing. Fasting is about anticipation and longing, but Jesus is the realization and fulfillment of all longings. Therefore, when the disciples are with Jesus, they do not fast. But when he is gone, and that's likely a double reference to his time in the tomb and his time away in heaven before the second coming, when he is gone, they do fast. During those times when Jesus is away, they long for him, and they are hungry for his presence. Verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Notice here that Jesus has power over disease and death. The two stories are intertwined as death and disease are intertwined. But clearly, Matthew intends for us to see that Jesus has authority over all. Notice that both the woman and the child are daughter to Jesus. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22. We are all children in need of help from the Lord. And then lastly, I can't fail to point this out. Notice that Jesus doesn't mind being interrupted. He was on his way to a very important meeting, and yet still he stopped and saw 
and healed this woman. Thanks be to God. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Again, we're reminded that Matthew is interested in why it is that some see the truth of who Jesus is and others don't. These are the first people in Matthew's gospel to refer to Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah. And the irony is that they were blind men. They couldn't see anything else, but they could see this. And seeing this, they are healed. And then Jesus tells them not to tell anyone, which is a bit of a surprise. This reminds us, helpfully, that miracles can become a distraction and can actually serve to obscure the heart and substance of the saving work of Christ. People can become obsessed with the immediate at the expense of the eternally significant. Jesus is aware of that danger and is correspondingly cautious with all things miraculous. But as we see here, these men cannot contain their enthusiasm. Verse 32, And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Here, Matthew alerts us to the fact that not all within Judaism are embracing this new movement. A tide of opposition is steadily growing, and Judaism itself is beginning to fracture under the pressure that is being exerted by the words and works of Jesus. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice that Jesus' ministry was characterized by both purpose and pity. He went out to preach and teach, and yet he had compassion on the crowds. So it ought to be with us. We must strive to keep our gospel preaching front and center. And we must also be ever responsive to the needs of the men and women, boys, and girls around us. The need is great, brothers and sisters. Therefore, pray to the Lord to send out laborers like that into the harvest. Amen. And thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. 
Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 